All right, let's give it a go. Uh, Psalm 110. 110. Let's, uh, let's give it a read, and then we'll chat about it, okay? Just listen to it. You don't even really need to follow along in your Bible. Just take a listen. 110. The Lord said to my Lord, You shall sit at my right hand when I make your enemies the footstool under your feet. When the Lord from Zion hands you the scepter, the symbol of your power, march forth through the ranks of your enemies. At birth you were endowed, endowed with princely gifts and resplendent in holiness. You have shown with the dew of youth since your mother bore you. The Lord has sworn and will not change his purpose. You are a priest forever in the succession of Melchizedek. The Lord at your right hand has broken kings in the day of his anger. So the king in his majesty, majesty, sovereign of a mighty land, will punish nations. He will drink from the streams beside the path, and therefore will hold his head high. Okay? So just what's sort of the first thing that comes to mind when you hear that? Okay, good. Talking to Jesus. Okay. We'll have to figure out if he's talking to Jesus or about Jesus. Okay? But you're right. He's talking to somebody about something big. What else? What else comes to mind? Yes, where did you hear the Christmas story? You have shown with the dew of youth since your mother bore you? Yes. And is that in your Bibles? Take a look at verse 3. Is that in your Bible? Something like, you have shown with the dew of youth since your mother bore you? Okay, good. Yes, yes, yes. Good. From the womb of the dawn. Good. What else do you hear? So you hear the Christmas story. You hear something about Jesus. What else do you hear? Yes. Can you tell us about Melchizedek? Don't tell us a lot because then you'll steal my thunder, but tell us a little bit about Melchizedek to sort of get us excited. Yeah. Yes. Out of nowhere, he appears. And we'll, read, we'll look at the text in Hebrews, um, and we'll see how he might align himself, or maybe the better way to say it, how Jesus might align himself with Melchizedek. Because they might be closer in comparison than you initially think. Okay. Yes, that's right. Yes, good. See, now you're starting to go into my outline. Didn't you teach this last time? You went to, you've been in the joy group. Um, all right, so what else do you hear? You hear the Christmas story, you hear something about Jesus, and you hear Melchizedek, who's this goofy priest that sort of comes out of nowhere. What else? Anything? Psalm 110. You're welcome. Judgment, yes. And who will do the judging? Yes, the Lord will. Now, where do the, um, where do you see quotation marks? Where do they begin in your psalm? The very first word or after the first word? After the first word, right? So what's happening here is David, this is a psalm of David, I think. It'll say in your Bible. David is repeating for you what someone has said to him. Okay? David is repeating for you what someone has said to him. So this isn't like the other psalms where David gets upset or David is praying for judgment or David is sorrowful. This is a psalm where David is simply saying, guess what, folks? I heard this and I'm going to tell you. Okay? Yes. Yes, right. Exactly. Yes. Okay, let me read it one more time, and then we'll work through it. Just listen to it. 
Just listen to the very first line. The Lord said to my Lord, you shall sit at my right hand when I make your enemies the footstool under your feet. When the Lord from Zion hands you the scepter, the symbol of your power, march forth through the ranks of your enemies. At birth, you were endowed with princely gifts and resplendent in holiness. You have shown with the dew of youth since your mother bore you. The Lord has sworn and will not change his purpose. You are a priest forever in the succession of Melchizedek. The Lord at your right hand has broken kings in the day of his anger. So the king in his majesty, sovereign of a mighty land, will punish nations. He will drink from the stream beside the path and therefore will hold his head high. Okay, you hear anything different that time? What'd you hear? With the new members, we say, you can say anything you want, like monkeys came out of Jesus' ear. What did you hear? Yeah. Yep. Good. Yep. Good. So the Lord, all caps, said to my Lord, lowercase, Oh, sorry. The Lord said to my Lord all of this stuff. So all the things about uh, priest, about king, about judge, all these things are spoken to this Lord, okay? Now, <clears throat> the second Lord, is he greater or lesser than David? If David calls him a Lord, is he greater or lesser than David? He's greater than David. So it sort of works like this. The Lord said to my Lord all these things which have come down to me, David. Okay? So who are the two lords? That's the question. Who are the two lords? Yes. Yes. If you see all caps... <clears throat> This is Yahweh. Remember, in, in Hebrew, there are no vowels, not technically. And Yahweh is the divine name. So if you ever meet a Jew, you don't ever want to say the name Yahweh because um, they don't speak it. It's so sacred, they don't speak it. In fact, when I took Hebrew at the seminary, we had a professor who was doing a PhD at Hebrew Union and sort of took this line of thinking, and we were not allowed to speak the divine name in class. Um, so when you read it in the text, Yahweh, you actually spoke... Adonai, okay? Because the divine name is so sacred. Um, and you see this even in Christianity. You know, the name is everything. The Lord puts his name in places and does certain things. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in there, but it sounds fun. <clears throat> so the name is everything. Now, what you, the, the defense of using the name is because of Christ, you now have access to the name, okay? But uh, you're right. All caps is Yahweh. That is technically God, but even more specifically, it's what person of the Trinity? Father. This is Adonai, which is the Lord who comes with power, but also technically the Lord who comes to save. Okay, When, um, when the daughter of Zion in Zechariah 9.9 says the Lord will come, the Lord is Adonai, and the Lord comes to save the daughter of Zion. So who's the Lord that comes to save? Jesus, okay? 
The Son, right. We'll just say Christ. The Anointed One, Lord. Okay? So what David is saying is, the Father, the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Jesus, all these things. You'll judge, you'll have a scepter, you're youthful from your mother's womb, you're a priest in succession of Melchizedek, and I'm going to give you the throne forever. Okay? Now, uh, you remember the, the Lenten hymn. What's the hymn that ends, proofs I see sufficient of it? He's the true and faithful word. Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like this? What's that hymn called? Yes, and there's one line in Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted that says, David's son, yet David's Lord. Where does that come from? Psalm 110. Got it? So David, who, uh, Jesus, okay, so, uh, Jesus is a descendant of David, okay? By relationship, you can trace the lineage. Look at Matthew chapter 1. David is a, or Jesus is a descendant of David, and yet while he's a son of David, he's also the Lord of David, okay? And that's what this psalm is telling you already from the beginning. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord all of these things. Make sense? So who is David talking about? Jesus. This is what was said to Jesus. All these things. This is what was said to Jesus. All right? Okay. So keep looking. And you notice uh, all throughout the Gospels, you'll see this as you, as you sort of read the Gospels, whenever Jesus is defending himself, uh, particularly when he's defending his divine nature. So they say, how can you claim to be the Lord? What text does he use as a proof? He always uses this psalm. This is the psalm that's most quoted in the New Testament and most quoted particularly in the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have Jesus citing the first verse of this psalm. They say, how can you claim to be the Christ? And Jesus says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Okay? So this psalm, in this psalm, and we'll see this in just a minute, in this psalm, you have the fullness of who Jesus is. If you needed one psalm to define the life of Christ, or if you said, I don't know anything about Jesus or what he does or who he is, this is the psalm you'd want to read, okay? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. Right, right. That's great. So this is the psalm of the Christian faith. Look at, uh, look at Hebrews chapter 1. Flip there in your Bibles. I can never remember where Hebrews is at. First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrew, Hebrews, James. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We'll pretend no one else heard that. Hebrews, then James. Yes, that's right. I don't go to the back of the Bible that often. Never really liked it that much. Although I wrote my MDiv thesis on uh, the sermons of Saint John or Saint Augustine on First John, so I had to move to the back. But I try not to go there very often. It gets a little scary for me. Hebrews chapter one, verses one to three. Now keep in mind what was just said in Psalm one ten. Okay, the Lord said to my Lord, "You shall sit at my right hand when I make your enemies the footstool under your feet." Keep that in mind. Somebody read for us 
Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Who wants to read? Don't all jump up at once. Oh, yeah, by force. That was great. Go ahead. Good. So what do you have in Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 about the Son? You have, he used to speak by the prophets. Now he's got a son. He's the heir of all things, meaning everything belongs to him. He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory, meaning he bears the image. He's an exact, as the Greek says, he's an exact icon of his father. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He speaks. After making purification for sin, so he dies, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, look back at Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, you shall sit at my right hand when I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. How does Jesus, so we know now that this is Jesus, how does Jesus eventually get to the right hand of his father? What does he have to do? Yes. Thank you for that very graphic image. As I said to the eighth grade the other day, I said, what happens when you sin? One kid raised his hand and said, you die and go to hell. I said, you said it, not me. <laughs> yes, so he has to die, okay? Um, yes, another great hymn. Jeez, um, I, I can only remember words to hymns. I can never remember the titles. Uh, uh, Hasten as a bride to meet him. That's a Eucharistic hymn. How, what's the name of that one? No. There's the one line in there. I'll tell you the line because I don't remember the hymn name. Himself the victim and himself the priest. Yeah. So in order for him to be the Lord, he has to be the victim and the priest. Okay? He has to be the victim and the priest. Now, here's what you have so far in Psalm 110. This is so good. The Lord said to my Lord, you shall sit at my right hand when I make your enemies the footstool under your feet. That's power. That's victory, right? But you also have, when the Lord from Zion hands you the scepter, the symbol of your power, march forth through the ranks of your enemies. Now, does the Lord have enemies or do humans have enemies? Primarily. The Lord does, but primarily the Lord doesn't get in a fight with people and say, now you're my enemy, usually. Humans do, right? Okay, so you have here two things. You have sitting at the right hand. Is that reserved for humans or the divine? Verse 1, sit at my right hand. That's reserved for the divine, right? Only Christ. Remember, James and John say, Lord, can one of us grant one of us to sit at your right and one at your left? They have no idea what they're asking for. Divine, however, this same person has earthly enemies, human. You have in the opening verses a confession of who Christ is, the two natures of Christ, both divine and human, okay? And that's very important. If you lose the human, you don't have a savior um, because you have no body. And if you lose the divine, you can't be forgiven. So already in Psalm 110, this is why what you just read from Luther is very helpful. This is the psalm of the Christian faith. If you know Psalm 110, you know Jesus, the fullness of Jesus. 
You all tracking that? It's a little disjointed. You know, I've got a different translation, uh, but let me look in. Mine doesn't say the Son. It continues to say the Lord. The Lord has sworn. The Lord is at your right hand. I see. Yep. Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. The quotations end, and verses 5 to 7 are a picture of the cross. Right. Yes. So the, so the, so the position, yes, so the location changes. Okay? So he begins at the right hand of whom? The Father. He begins at the right hand of the Father. And now in verse 5, he's at the right hand of David. Okay? What is this talking about here? Look at the arrow. Goes from Son to Christ. What is this talking about? The incarnation, right? So what you have from verses 1 to 5 is a picture of what Jesus does going from heaven down to earth. Make sense? The only reason I really wanted to read Psalm 110 was because of Melchizedek. Yes. That's why I'm completely unprepared to talk about anything else but Melchizedek. That's why you're all like, this, group, this table over here is like, when is this thing going to end? Well, yeah, two natures. We couldn't care less about that. Okay. Yep. Yep. Think about posture. When you drink from a brook, what are you going to do? Bend down. What, in, in churchly terms, that's often called an act of what? When you come into church and you bend your head, or when you come to the altar and you bend your head, that's an act of what? Humiliation, reverence, right? Okay, so he bends his head to drink, and then what does it say? Lift up his head. Now think about the action. So he bends down, humiliation, he lifts up, exaltation. Now for those of you who grew up Lutheran, you remember from the catechism, Donna, you can help us, there are not only two natures to Christ, divine and human, but there are also how many states to Christ? Two, the state of humiliation and the state of exaltation. Got it? Okay. So this, is, this psalm is purely about Christ. Let's talk about Melchizedek. I have nothing else to say, actually. All right, so what do you know about Melchizedek? <clears throat> what do you know about him? Yes, that's a bit like me, Betty. No one knows where he comes from. They just hope he goes back. <laughs> when will that guy leave? That's what people are saying. Probably said the same thing about Jesus. No prophets welcome in his hometown. All right. So, try to get Abby to name a child Melchizedek, but she's not going for it. My goal in life, though, is to get Mary into every name. Um, if we have a boy, don't know how that's going to work out. Do we have any more markers besides this one? What's that? Marion, that 
I'm going to tell her you suggested it, actually. I'm having dinner tonight with uh, a law professor from Valpo who I met at Cambridge this summer. He and his wife live in the city. Um, his wife's a lawyer and doing a, wants to do a PhD at St. Andrews, so they want to have dinner and chat about it. But he writes me an email saying, I hope you don't mind. Now think about this. This is how great this dinner is going to be. I hope you don't mind. I invited a friend of mine to come to dinner who's a literature scholar, but is a Catholic brother. I'm like, this is going to be great. But guess what kind of Catholic brother? A Marianist Catholic brother, which means he lives in a, in a house that's fully devoted to Mary. So I wrote back and said, it's going to be a struggle for me, but I think I'll be able to handle it. Okay, so, Melchizedek. Melchizedek, or fondly referred to as Mel, all right? What's that? Yes, Mel Gibson. Oof. You know, he didn't marry that woman. Did you hear about that? The woman he had the affair with didn't marry her. I think I heard he didn't marry her because she wouldn't join his ultra-conservative Roman Catholic Church. Well, the prenup too, but the ultra-conservative Catholic Church didn't help. <laughs> prenup now, man. You know, <laughs> if you signed a prenup, wow. Well, anyways, we'll get into Tiger Woods and that won't go so well. Okay, so Melchizedek. While you're thinking about what you know about Melchizedek, flip back to Genesis chapter 14. Okay? Now, just off the top of your head, without reading, now that we got all the other boring stuff out of the way, what do you know about Melchizedek? Well, you know he's a priest. What else? Yes, he's very old. Wait, you mean Abraham tithed? Are you kidding me? I thought we didn't do that sort of thing. Okay, so... Uh, yes, he's a priest and a king. So he's a priest and a king. That's significant because the Lord doesn't make him that way, right? He's a priest and a king. Oh, Kirby, you weren't supposed to go there yet. I have nothing else to say now. Yes. Well, let's get to this. He's a priest and a king. He's old. He receives a tithe, meaning Abraham understood the fullness of the Christian life. What else? Yes, he does play with bread and wine. Thank you very much. What else? What else do you know about Melchizedek? She's just read all the notes from the study Bible, so. What else do you know? Yes, he's blessing. Good. Okay. Anything else? All right, that's all you know. Good. Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Cedar Laomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. 
he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, in the scriptures, who blesses whom? Does the greater bless the lesser, or the lesser bless the greater? Yes, and so, well, it does when you get to Jesus. Yes, yeah. Um, yes, it's a little different here. That would be sort of, we, I think we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Pastor Bruzik did a psalm that was, bless the Lord my soul. And I think uh, there he said that that sort of blessing is praise for what the Lord has done, as opposed to, uh, yes, like what we did yesterday. We went to somebody's house yesterday and said to the young girl, can we bless you? That's a different thing. Okay, so in, as far as blessing goes, like calling down a blessing upon someone, does the greater bless the lesser or the lesser the greater? The greater the lesser, okay? So who is greater, Melchizedek or Abraham? Melchizedek, yes. So blessing, which means he is greater than Abram. And that's huge because, you know, who is sort of chief in God's salvation plan? Abraham, right? Everything is about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you remember in an order in the Bible, if you're named first, that means you're the thing. So Peter is always the first disciple called. So Peter's the chief apostle. Here in this list, who's named first? Abram. Abram's always named first. However, Melchizedek blesses Abram. Now, flip your Bibles back to Hebrews. And it's significant also that he plays with bread and wine. We'll see that uh, maybe later. Flip back to Hebrews, chapter 7. See what else you know about Melchizedek here. Look at verse 1. Yes, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, this is Melchizedek, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Is this unbelievable? He is without father or mother or genealogy, meaning you can't go look him up someplace. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay? We don't even have to read any more from Hebrews. Uh, you got enough there. Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So now what else do you know about Melchizedek? What else do you know? Uh, never ending and never beginning. Right, so he's eternal. Eternal, I think. Everlasting would mean no end. Eternal means no beginning and no ending, I think. So he's eternal, no genealogy. How do you spell genealogy? G-E-N. There we go. No genealogy. He offers bread and wine. What are, what are his names? King of Salem and Melchizedek, right? 
Now, Salem means what? Peace. Melchizedek, it says, means what? Remember, it says in the scriptures, in Christ, righteousness and peace kiss. Remember that? Is this boring you? <laughs> I told you, there's not much else to this psalm except for this. Righteousness and peace kiss, okay? It's funny. Uh, the joy group thought this was a lot more interesting than you folks. Okay. Righteousness and uh, I don't know. I just know it says it in the scriptures. Someplace in the Bible it says, righteousness and peace kiss. Don't know. Someplace in the Bible it says. <laughs> okay. Priest, king, old, tithe, red wine, blessing, eternal, no genealogy, Salem, Melchizedek. So now let me, so here's the question of the day. Vic, when do you get ordained? Okay, now don't be a seminary. When do you get ordained? Like date-wise. Thank you, Mrs. Walter. <laughs> the church calls you. <laughs> okay. Let's forget we ever heard that. Okay, so when you get ordained, the church calls you. Good. So, Vicar, you get called to, I don't know, someplace out in western Iowa. Okay? Probably where you're going, out in the fields. Now, we come to the vicar's ordination. What do they do to pastors at ordinations? Put their hands on them. That's right. Because what does St. Paul say? Remember St. Paul says the young Timothy, don't neglect the gift that was given to you when the council of pastors did what? Laid their hands on you. So if you don't put your hand, have you ever been to an ordination? Who's been to an ordination? Good. Have you ever been to an ordination where they hovered like this? It's sort of, Betty, I'm going to pretend that you're a male and that you're about to be a pastor. They kind of go like this. Is that an ordination or not? No. Got to put your, I'm going to touch you now. Put your hand on there. Head, right? I know. Can you cover for me this weekend? Uh, so, at ordination, what's that? Yeah, well, okay. Uh, at ordinations, if you don't touch the person, it's not an ordination. So at the vicar's ordination, actually, Pastor Bruzek was very good about this. He said, we met down here before my ordination, and I think he said something like, if you're not planning to touch him, then you should probably take your vestments off which was good, because at an ordination, you have to touch the person. What's the other thing pastors do? Well, yes. Because, because Luther, well, uh, because they don't, as one professor of mine used to say, you neither know the scriptures nor the power therein, as Jesus says. They don't know the scriptures nor the power therein. Exactly right. Because they believe ordination doesn't mean anything. In the scriptures, ordination is everything. In, in American Lutheranism and, frankly, American Christianity, ordination is sort of nothing. What's fascinating, though, is 
I was saying this, I don't know if I said it to you or to Pastor Bruzek, the evangelicals, who really have no official doctrine of ordination, have a better understanding of the ministry oftentimes than Lutherans do. This is striking. I'll give you an example. So Monday night was the kids' Christmas program, the preschool Christmas program. And one guy who's here with his kid, Todd Wilson is his name, is pastor in Oak Park at a rather large, I think it's a Baptist church. He was at college church, did his PhD at Cambridge. Now is there, we're in this study group, and uh, he was here, and I said, Todd, great to see you. Oh, good to see you. He said, so what's your role in tonight's service? I said, well, nothing. He said, really? They don't have the pastors involved in these sorts of things? Now, here's the thing. He doesn't know what we do. He doesn't know we said to Val, go ahead. But in their tradition, the pastor is involved in everything when it comes to stuff from the sanctuary because they have a whole different understanding of the ministry. The pastor is the spiritual head of that group. And I think we've sort of lost that in Lutheranism and in, in some of evangelical Christianity. And partly that's because we don't believe ordination means anything. No, because we don't want to be Roman Catholic. Yeah. Because for a Roman Catholic, what does ordination mean? It's everything. It's everything. That means you're a pastor, and that means you've been given a job to do. And if you're not ordained, you can't do certain things. You go to some Lutheran churches today, and you have a lay person at the altar. You do, I mean... This is all off the record now, but if this is going to go on the internet, this would be good. Uh, if you have a layperson doing those sorts of things, you can't trust that those are, that those are sacraments, that those are the Lord's gifts. Because as St. Saint, as Saint Paul says, regard us as stewards of the mysteries, as stewards of the sacraments. If you don't have a steward, you don't have a mystery. It's like if you go to dinner and you don't have a waiter at your restaurant, you're probably not going to get served. Mary. Yes, right. Right. It's like at a wedding rehearsal, you don't pronounce people married, because then they are. <laughs> now, for some couples, they want that. Uh, it might not be a bad thing, but for other couples, you know, you say, let's just hold off just a little bit, okay? Yes, thank you very much. You're like our own little Libronics in the back here. Thank you. You just, you know what, you just passed your deaconess internship. Great job. <laughs> Only if you get those pew torches clean, though. <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, other deaconesses have tried that. Don't do that. Okay. <laughs> Heather, or not Heather, Holly. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yes, right. He comes from a tradition where that's probably true. One of the more damaging things in the Lutheran Church um, was a book that was published back in the 70s, I think, called Everyone a Minister. Yes. Everyone a Minister. Everyone a Minister. And you hear this sometimes. I mean, you hear people talk this way, even in Lutheran circles, like, Everyone's a minister. Well, everyone is a priest in the sense that you're living stones, as St. Peter says, priesthood of all believers. But not everyone, so Luther makes this distinction. Everyone is a priest, not everyone's a pastor. And what, what's the task of a priest? What does a priest do in the Old Testament? Offer, offer sacrifices and pray. So as we often say to people, if you want to be a priest, then pray and offer sacrifices. People don't often want to do that. They want to tell you how to do your job, but they don't want to pray and offer sacrifices. But there is a specific order, and this is part of the reason why we read Psalm 110. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his purpose or his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
okay? So you think of, like, I'm going to go meet this brother tonight, and he's in the order of the Marianists, which means he's got a specific group of people he reports to, there's a head, there are people under him, they follow the rules, and they live together in community. The same word is used here, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is how it works. The father sends the son, right? You just saw, the Lord said to my Lord. The father sends the son. Who does the son send then? Open up your Bibles to John chapter 20. Remember, this is the night of the resurrection, the eighth day. John chapter 20, verse 19 and following. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so the eighth day, the day of the new creation, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. How did Jesus get in? Went through the locked doors, right? Which should give hope to all your relatives and friends and family members who have sort of uh, locked their hearts to Jesus. He can still go through locked doors, right? When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Unless you can see a fleshly Christ, he's not always a Jesus for you. So that's part of the reason why you have the sacraments. You can see Jesus, his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, okay, the Father sends the Son, even so I am sending you. Who does he send here? Yeah, specific, more specific. Uh, no, less specific. Not disciples, but apostles, right? He sends the apostles. And you know that in the Greek, the word apostle just means sent one. Apostolos. So the Father sends the Son, the Son sends the apostles, and then the apostles send. The apostles are eventually going to die, so what do they do? They ordain other men, right? Because they're, they're not going to live forever. They ordain pastors, beginning with Peter and Timothy and all those, or Timothy and all those other folks, who then ordain Danik, Ruzek, and Nelson. Okay? This is the order of which Psalm 110 speaks. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, because the order of Melchizedek is really the order of the Son. The Father sends his Son, who sends apostles, who send pastors, who send Gainic, Ruzek, and Nelson. So my ministry, my ordination, is not tied to other pastors. It's not tied to the apostles, although it is. This is the line. This is, you know, Lutherans say we don't believe in apostolic succession. We do. Because somebody laid hands on Peter, who laid hands on somebody else, who laid hands all the way down to today, and then November 26th, you know, three years ago, they put hands on me. And just in case you don't believe it's true, do you know the story about my ordination? This is so great. I tried to help Nelson out. I couldn't, I couldn't go all the way, although he may have gotten it from me. I had a Swedish Lutheran at my ordination who put hands on me who does officially have apostolic succession. He can trace it back to St. Peter. So show a little respect, okay? <laughs> all you people say, I'm just like you, and I'm like, actually, you're not. I've got apostolic succession. So uh, 
Yes, save us from this, would you? <laughs> yes. Everyone a minister. Yep. No, I think you're, here's the, here's the thing. The sin of everyone a minister was a sin of pastors, not lay people. Pa lay people just did what their pastor said. So it's not on them, it's on the pastors. But what, let me, well, let me ask you this first. Everyone a minister was published in the 70s-ish, right? I think, ish. Um, and in the 70s, Lutherans were trying to do everything they, everything they could not to be Catholic. Because you had some of the Lutherans leave, who were very liturgical. They left the church. But what would be the sign of a pastor? How would you distinguish a pastor who maybe would support the idea that everyone's a minister? What would he look like? Yes, he wouldn't wear vestments. He'd probably wear a very nice pinstripe suit. Just like you, that's right. What else wouldn't he do? Yeah, because we're all on the same level, right? What else would he do? Now, this, this may be an over or mischaracterization, but I think you find this to be true if you, if you go around to places. What else would he do? Wouldn't wear vestments, probably would speak from the floor. He might be a she? Who said it? Oh. Yeah, if you've got a she in here, you've probably missed the order of Melchizedek. <laughs> okay? Yes? Okay, good. Kirby, I have nothing else to say, and I still have 15 more minutes to kill. I will welcome any conversation you all want to have. What do you have? Yeah. Yes. Is there, is there a difference between the ministry, and the pastorate. Okay? Who says yes? Raise your hand. I'm sorry. Is there a difference between the ministry and the pastorate? Okay? How many of you would say no? Raise your hand. Good job, Vic. Raise your hand. Way to put it up. Yes, there is. There's the ministry. There's no difference between the ministry and the pastorate. There's the office of the ministry, and there's the pastorate. Exact same thing. So this is why we don't make Augie, the minister of janitorial services. Good. Y yes. Yes, right. Yes, right. Yes, you're right. Maybe not a giver in the way that other people are givers. Okay, good. According to the creed, how many churches are there? One church. Okay, according to the creed, how many Christs are there? One Christ. Uh, so if there's one church and there's one Christ, there is one ministry. Okay? So there is the ministry. And believe me, we're all goofed up in this. And not St. John, I'm talking about, like, the church. We're all goofed up because we have the ministry of the Christian teacher. In fact, when I was, at, when I was in college, I was, I was trained to be a Lutheran school teacher, and one class you had to take at the end was called the Office of the Christian Teacher, which is deceptive. I mean, you suddenly know where they, what they want to say is there are different offices in the church. The way Jesus sets it up is there's one ministry, and then all of these supporting areas. So, you know, you have music, 
you have uh, human care. I mean, pick your thing. They're all these supporting areas. However, there is only one minister, teacher, you know, Lutheran school teacher, all these other things, layperson, meaning you just come to church and receive the gifts. All of these are in support of the office of the ministry. But there is only one ministry because there's only one Christ. There's only one church. Um, so your role, yes, but even, but even um, boy, yes, no. My call documents, my call documents say minister of, of religion or minister, minister of the gospel. Um, look at it this way. Here's Jesus. Not an art major. Here's Jesus. Probably had long hair. I'm not an art. You say that? We are too much alike, buddy. He's a happy Jesus. Lost an arm in a battle or something. <laughs> okay. Amputee. Okay, so there's Jesus. Now, what's so funny about this? So there's Jesus. Now, according to what the scriptures say, this is the body of Christ, right? This is the body. You can see that, right? This is the body. Are you the head or are you the, the body as the church? You're not the head. Who's the head? Jesus is the head, right? So this is Jesus, and you all are down here. So this is Christ. And this is lay folks, all right? So you might be the big toe. You might be the arm. Who knows what you're going to be? Pick your thing. Good. The Father sends the Son, who sends apostles, who sends pastors, who send Gainic, Bruzek, and Nelson. You are priests forever after the order of the Son. Where does the pastor stand then? As the head. This is why the church is the family. Who's the head of the household? Now, maybe in your house it's different. But who's, in my house it is, Abby does everything. You know, in uh, the pastor stands in the stead of Christ. He's the head. Okay? So there's one ministry and these various other parts that help function, help the whole body to function. So yes, if you lose a leg, you're not going to function as well. If you lose an arm, you're not going to function as well. If you lose Lutheran school teachers and parish nurses and musicians, you're not going to function as well. But what keeps the, the body alive is the head. The church fathers used to say, if you don't have the ministry, you don't have the church because you're missing half the body. Yeah. Yes. Well, there was... Yep. Yeah, it's, it's around, yeah, it was around the time of like evangelism explosion. So you'd go up and knock on somebody's door and say, if you died tonight, Kirby, where would you go? Is that law or gospel? That's the law. If you die tonight, where? So, but what happened, you're right. What happened was there was a shift and they said, gosh, we don't think visitors will like the church because we wear robes and we chant and we do all this. So guess what? You members come to church and be strengthened and then you all go out and be ministers and bring people to the gospel. 
And there was sort of this equality. So the pastor was the head inside the building. You all were the head outside the building. The pastor was the minister in the building. You were the minister outside the building. And what we found is that's actually not the best way to make disciples. (laughs) The best way to make disciples is in the confines of the church. Yeah. Yeah. But the point, yeah. But the goal is different, right. The end, the end game is different. Yeah. Yes, Martha. Amen. I, when I got confirmed, I wore a stole. I've been a pastor since I was 12. Yeah, I know. Isn't that funny? I mean, that's sort of in the same, in the same vein, you know. We're, everyone's a minister. Everyone, we're all equal. But what you have to see is we are equal in the eyes of Christ, but there's distinction. Husband and wives are equal, but there's distinction. Some people have different tasks than other people. But that does mean that at the end of the day, one is the head and one is the body. Thanks for sticking around for the whole thing. I could have used your help earlier. <laughs> Holly's been badgering me about head and body and everyone's a minister and I just can't, I can't keep up anymore. What was your question, Lindsay, about women? Well, that then sort of, that sort of narrows the ministry to simply talking about the resurrection. Okay? Um, yeah, she didn't necessarily give out the gifts, but it is, but here's the thing, we hear that all the time. The Joy Group says the same thing, present company excluded, says the same thing. Well, Mary Magdalene was the first to hear the gospel, therefore couldn't women preach if they had to? Okay, but it's a, it's, it's a jump in logic. Yes. We take it twice because we have that many sins. We take it first and second at four services. So I get it eight times over the weekend. There, again, um, and you may have even seen that, well, you could have seen it. Yeah, oh, believe me, I don't doubt it. There are lots of churches like that. And it's sort of this act of humiliation, like I'm going to let someone else commune me so I don't appear to be better than other people. Here's the strange thing, the strange thing about humility. False humility is really pride. <laughs> so when you say, I'm not going to let, I'm not going to commune myself, what you're saying is, I really should commune myself, but you people are too weak for that. So you're right, and that was certainly was not Luther's practice. There's a great Luther quote that says, the priest communes himself first and then communes everybody else. And what you need to see is, as a pastor, it's almost as though you have a split personality. When I pronounce the absolution, do I forgive myself? Yeah, yeah. I forgive, I forgive all people as pastor, including myself, sinner, Josh. I commune myself with hands of a priest as the sinner Josh. That doesn't mean I, I somehow, like when I'm done being a pastor, I lose being a pastor. That's the other thing in the Missouri Synod. When you retire, you're no longer a pastor. If Melchizedek is a priest forever, so is a pastor. So you never lose that character. Um, but as a minister, you do those sorts of things. You commune yourself, and you forgive yourself, and, and, and you preach a sermon to yourself. You ever see me get choked up at church? But your question is a good one, and ultimately, at the end of the day, I think the short answer is Ephesians 5. It says the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. So it would only be fitting if men stood in the, in the stead of Christ. If you had a woman, you'd have an unbalanced relationship. And I, we don't need to go any further than that, but you know what I'm saying. It's not, it's not a marital relationship. It's not a marriage anymore. Um, 
So to have a woman, a woman is a receiver and Christ is the giver. That's why the church is called the body, but the church is called a woman. Um, so to have a giver as a giver, or giver, sorry, a receiver as a giver, turns the whole relationship upside down. That's not how we're created. I mean, it really is, it actually, at the end of the day, it's about creation. It's about order in Eden. This is why the language of order is used here. What the Lord is trying to do is restore order to creation, and he begins that process by ordering the ministry. Unless there's order in the ministry, there's no order in creation. So you need to understand order is a good thing. Bishops, pastors, deacons, lay folk. That might be the Lord calling right now. Yes. We're, not, we're way off right now, so it doesn't matter. Just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Here, yes, and they have the same problem in Russia. There's a story of when uh, the church was finally allowed to function again in Russia. There was a line, something like six hours long, for a priest to hear confession. Because people had waited 10 years to go to confession because they had to go to a priest. So the answer wouldn't be just taking a lay person and saying, do this. That's, I don't think that's the best answer because ordination does mean something. The best answer may be you take a faithful lay person and actually ordain them, actually put hands on them. Because it's not going to the seminary that makes a pastor, although that's important because all the apostles were trained. It's not even your call that makes a pastor. When I got my call documents, you're like, okay. What makes a pastor is the laying on of hands. So if you're out in the bush or you're out in Russia and you need a pastor, ordain a faithful layperson and say, you're now our pastor. That would be the best way. Because then you have a steward of the mysteries. So the laying on of hands is everything. Make sense? All right, we are going to meet, I think, do we meet next week? Is there school next week? All right, why don't you plan on coming next week, um, and then we'll take probably two or three weeks off for Christmas, um, and then we'll come back after the new year, okay? Gotcha. All right, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.